0: What's up, everyone? This is Cortland from ndhackers.com, and you're listening to the ND Hackers podcast. On this show, I talk to the founders of profitable internet businesses, and I try to get a sense of what it's like to be in their shoes. How did they get to where they are today? How did they make decisions, both at their companies and in their personal lives? And what makes their businesses tick? Today, I am talking to the one and only Ryan Hoover, the founder of Product Hunt, and apparently, also known in some circles as the Hoofster. <laughs> Ryan. Welcome to the Indie Hackers podcast.
1: Yeah, and, and for everyone else uh, that, that's wondering where that reference came from, I think it was somebody in Indie Hackers. I'm forgetting his name at the moment. Called me the Hoofster.
0: Now I hear it all the time. I hear it all around San Francisco.
1: Do you? It's, Do it's catching you? All on? All right. I don't know. I don't know how I feel about it. But glad to be here. I've been, you know, listening to the podcast. It's it's on my my feed and in, in the Breaker podcast app, and so uh, it's cool to be on it.
0: Cool. It's really cool to have you on here finally. We both live in San Francisco, we both run online communities, we both recently got acquired by a bigger company, so I think we've got mm-hmm. a lot to talk about. But perhaps the easiest place to start is, what is Product Hunt exactly?
1: Yeah, so, so Product Hunt is similar to Indie Hackers. it's a community of people building and excited about technology, really. So you'll see a lot of people building apps or Chrome extensions or products or startups and launching on Product Hunt. But it's also kind of evolved into a network and a community of people who are also connect with one another. And that's, that's why we launched things more recently like chat. So you can chat one-on-one with other individuals and, and other projects that we're working on to kind of extend the opportunities for people to help each other, learn from each other, connect, and so on.
0: What would you say is the difference between ND Hackers and Product Hunt?
1: I would say Product Hunt started off the very first version as a, a place to f- discover new cool products. And it was inspired largely by, if I go back to 2011, I actually used to browse AngelList, ironically enough, looking at companies because I'm such a nerd. And I was just curious to see what people were building. And so the beginnings of Product Hunt were simply, I want a list of really cool apps, products and things, and I want a place to share and talk about them with friends. That was sort of the, the focus. And It's now become in many ways like a launch pad for companies to introduce the new products and things to the world. And from there, it's kind of expanded into other community features. But I would say indie hackers, for me, at least from my perception, is very much a similar type of audience, but I would say more towards people who are building businesses. At least this is my perception, in that you have a lot of people who are not necessarily just launching side projects for fun or And they are to some extent, but many of them are actually looking to build a company and to make money. And I've also noticed a a skew towards a lot of bootstrappers and uh, maybe like nomad kind of technologists. So that's kind of my perception of some of the differences, I would say.
0: I agree. I would say the exact same thing. It's, and the hackers is more focused on people trying to generate revenue, build online businesses, definitely skews towards bootstrappers. Product hunt skews a little bit more towards products that either have no intention of making revenue or... Don't necessarily need to generate revenue up front. There's a lot of high growth startups on Product Hunt as well, and so we've sort of got sort of got it covered between the two of us.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's in in both places. One similar commonality I would say though is that they're both places for inspiration for people who are wanting to break into technology or are in technology today. And so you go to Product Hunt and you open up the site. And every day I open it up and I, I wonder what are people making today? And I'm surprised and sometimes shocked <laughs> by the products and things that people are creating. And on the indie hacker side, you go there and you're inspired by these stories of people who you know, bootstrapped and learned to code in six months and now are making $5,000 a month. Those are inspiring stories that can hopefully inspire the next generation of you know, entrepreneurs and creators.
0: Yeah, it's striking to me how many people will start working on a business or an app or a product because of the existence of something like Product Hunt or indie hackers, Like on Product Hunt, it's so fun, and it's so cool, and it's just encouraging to try to get what you've built to the top of the homepage that people are probably building all sorts of stuff that they never would have built otherwise because of the existence of Product Hunt. Yeah. And with indie hackers, I'll look at my metrics, I'll look at the number of downloads to the podcast, the number of visitors to the website, mm-hmm. and yeah, it feels kind of good to see those numbers go up when they do, but in a lot of ways it's intangible. It's just numbers on a screen. But if I get an email from somebody, or I meet somebody at an Indie Hackers meetup who says that they started their business because of a story they read on Indie Hackers or a podcast guest that I had on, then yeah, that's only one person, but it feels a lot more real and impactful.
1: Yeah, there's there's certainly anecdotes where every now and then someone will email me and and say and give us I feel like undeserved credit to some extent where they said Hey, I, I launched something six months ago and that gave me the confidence and the feedback to pursue this further, and now I've quit my job and I'm working out it full time or, Oh, I raised money. And now I'm building a team and pursuing this dream. And a lot of that happens. A lot of it's not really measurable, but it's super encouraging to see. It's something that I forward to the team and I want to remind people in the team, like, Hey guys, like look at this impact that we're making to this one individual. This is something that happens every single day or every month to some extent for people across the world. And uh, I'm sure you get similar emails like that too, it's encouraging when you start to to see like the sort of um, the touchy feely <laughs> kind of aspects of the yeah. impact of something like this.
0: I mean, I can tell you that Indie Hackers itself was largely inspired by a website called No Bad List, and the creator of that website, Peter Levels, was himself inspired by Product Hunt, and so it's pretty safe to say that without Product Hunt, there would be no Indie Hackers.
1: Oh, really? So do I get all all the credit? Of course um, you do, Ryan. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, the the reality is we're all we're all riffing off, off each other. We're all being inspired by, by each other. I mean, even if you look at the individual products themselves, like it's actually not a good idea to invent an entirely new, very foreign, hard to use kind of interface and start from, something from scratch. Everyone starts using the same or similar design patterns, and you know, technology is sort of this this evolving thing where. People are not only being inspired by each other to build things, but they're also taking design inspiration or um, marketing inspiration from how others have done it in the past.
0: You mentioned that back in the day, in 2011, you were inspired by AngelList. And today, Product Hunt is obviously one of the biggest online communities in the tech industry. Did you know it had that potential when
1: you were first starting out? Not in the beginning. It was in part because I I wasn't... giving myself the pressure in the very beginning to say this is going to be a company or a startup. And at the time, I didn't know what it would become because ultimately what I wanted was just a cool place to discover the newest products and apps of the day and have a place to talk about it with friends. And it wasn't it until, I don't know, some some months later after working on it on the side and being really excited, you know, every single sign signup that, ca- that happened, every single launch that happened, every person that commented and participated was really encouraging. It wasn't until several months after that that I realized this is something I want to do for a decade, for a long time. And yeah, going back to to my days browsing AngelList, you know, I didn't have the thought to, oh, maybe maybe I should productize what I'm doing. <laughs> you know, I think that's actually an interesting exercise for those that do want to start a side project or a company. It's almost like, what do you do every day, or what products do you use every day that aren't designed for your use case? For example, like I was using AngelList to browse and discover companies and products. Angelus isn't built for that. It's not designed for that. That's not the intention. But as I kind of reflect and internalize, that was maybe the first moment where I should have realized, wow, maybe there's an opportunity to build something like Product Hunt at that time.
0: Yeah, I think that's a great point, because if I look back at the origin of indie Hackers, I was spending a lot of time browsing Hacker News, looking for stories that could serve as inspiration and education for how I could build my own online business. And that's not really the use case that Hacker News was designed for, even though it was extremely useful. And so, of course, I could build something that served that use case intentionally, just like you did with Product Hunt. Mm -hmm. Now, it's easy to look at all this stuff with the benefit of hindsight and analyze it and see exactly why it worked. But, of course, things are never really that clear in the moment. When I think about the beginning of Product Hunt, getting an online community off the ground from scratch is extremely difficult. And yet, it seems like you did it all perfectly in the first few months or years after you launched. Like You were very strategic and analytical about everything. Is that just how it seems looking back four years later? Or is that how things actually were at the time?
1: You know, I'm trying to remember, honestly, what I was thinking at the time. And part of it was certainly methodical and very thoughtful in terms of the specific things that I was doing. But a lot of that was originally inspired by what I felt was right and what I enjoyed doing. And so one example of that is I would monitor the people that were signing up on Promotent. Uh, And I could do it back then because we... You know, maybe had a, a few dozen people sign up a day, so it's pretty quickly quick to to see who that was and look them up and see where they worked and and other things like that. And I would email a lot of those people individually, and not through an, an automated email from the founder via Intercom, but like an actual email from my Gmail. <laughs> I would email those people and and welcome them and say something that was very clear that it wasn't automated. And that was one a, a strategy and a tactic to to kind of strengthen the early community, but is also something I just enjoyed doing. I ended up finding myself, this was actually back when I was part-time at another company that I was transitioning out of. Found myself, admittedly, you know, working on it every now and then in the office at the other company that I was at, because I was so drawn to it. It was so fun and exciting to talk to these people that were using a thing that that we built. So yeah, to to answer your question, it was a combination of just passion and interest in what I felt was right, but also some thoughtful ways and how I think we could build a community in the in the beginning and in the early days.
0: Ironically, I emailed you today and I got your autoresponder, which said, quote, "I'm spending less time in my inbox in order to focus on product hunt." But what happened? <laughs>
1: what happened to loving the emails? <laughs> I know the irony. You know, I I turn my autoresponder on and off every now and then, and part of email does give me anxiety, and I feel the reality is I can't answer every email, or I just wouldn't be able to get my stuff done or, or really follow through with the commitments I already have. So when I put my autoresponder on, I feel like my anxiety levels dropped just a tiny bit. And uh, and I also find it effective because what will happen oftentimes is people will email me about support questions. And as much as I'd love to help and, and do support, the reality is I can't spend my time doing that all the time. So in that email response, I'll make sure that I direct them to the right people on the team or the right channels. And so it's even though it's annoying to get an autoresponder, I get it from other people all the time. It's for your own good, <laughs> for the people that are cold emailing me the uh, support inquiries and tickets.
0: I love getting autoresponders. I always I have a lot of respect for people who can turn on their autoresponder. I'm always jealous because I can't do it. And so what I do is I just feel bad all day. That's my email strategy.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I thought about doing an experiment, which would be turning off my email for a week entirely. And the problem is I don't think that's realistic. I don't think I can do that. but. I know that I would accomplish a lot more in terms of like the higher level stuff that I want to focus on.
0: What do you think is your favorite thing about running an online community? And also, what's your least favorite thing?
1: Uh, I would say my favorite thing, there's a lot of things that I like about my role and what we're building at Product Hunt. The favorite thing about community is that, I think it, some of it comes down to the touchy-feely stuff that I mentioned earlier in the sense that you get to interact with humans and people and you get to connect around something that we're all passionate about. You you don't go and join Product Hunt and participate and, and contribute if you're not into technology or if you're not excited about products. Otherwise, I don't know why you're there. <laughs> and that's part of what I think is fun is to talk to these people who are either excited about technology or building the products of the future. A lot of the, the dynamics of Product Hunt are talking to the makers and talking to the people that Downloaded or, or rather built the app that you just downloaded. So I think it's a really compelling, interesting dynamic and something I enjoy within the community. The least favorite thing is probably just also the difficulties of just managing issues or problems that come up because inevitably things happen, whether it's a mistake we made or a troll that comes up on the site that causes issues. Like those things happen and they're incredibly important to address. But those are probably the most difficult challenges I think of, of community building. Going to the, the troll component, I haven't seen trolls so much on indie hackers, but have you, how do you, you manage those kind of instances where there's issues or complaints? or Oh uh, yeah, we get, how do you manage that? We
0: get trolls. I think uh, our bigger problem is spammers. And so indie hackers being a little bit more focused on generating revenue, starting a business, it turns into a channel for people to market their products. They say, okay, well, we're all here doing the same thing. Why don't I try marketing my products to all these developers or all these founders who I think would be uh, great customers? And so what happens is, and I wouldn't count these people as trolls. I would just say that they're a little bit more focused on their own goals and not necessarily contributing to the community. But we get a lot of self-promotional posts that don't add very much to the community and I send a lot of one-on-one emails to people and say, hey, you know, here's what the point of the community is. Here's how you might be able to rephrase your posts in a way that can get a good discussion going and also get people to visit your website. And then every now and then we get just outright trolls. who want to come in and download everybody else's comments so they get to the top. or We want to create spammy threads. And I deal with that through a combination of some algorithms and some actual code that I've written to automatically detect that stuff. And then just manual effort and a lot of ways crowdsourcing it, community tools so anybody can report a thread on indie hackers. And people who have enough points can downvote other comments to you know, sort of hide inappropriate comments. And so far, so good. I've, I've been pretty surprised at how positive everybody is, how much everybody wants a community to, to succeed, how helpful everybody is. And I think you know, in a lot of ways, you said the hard part of a community is just dealing with the little issues that prop up and it gets harder at scale when there's so many people. And in a lot yeah. of ways, it's just like you're running an HR department for all of, your, <laughs> all of your users, and it's it's, yeah. not, it's not easy.
1: Yeah. On, on one hand, though, if you build it in the right direction and you have, uh, in some ways, like a self-policing community and a base, mm-hmm. that, that also is incredibly defensible and helps you scale. And I think the the problem with some communities, early on, they don't address some of those issues in the beginning, or they don't design the product in a way that can scale and and have some sort of levels of self-policing. And then they become just a cesspool or uh, deteriorate or, or actually become like a very, uh, nasty place. And, exactly. Uh, so I think it's for those that are building communities, it's so important to, to nip those things in the bud, as my mom, mom would say, she uses that phrase. I don't know why. It's um, a good <laughs> phrase. Where are you from? Yeah. Uh, from Oregon, Eugene,
0: okay. Oregon. Oh, cool. I just read shoe dog by Phil Knight, the founder of Nike oh, nice. and spends a lot of time talking about Oregon in that book.
1: Yeah, I've heard good things about the book. Yeah, I grew up in Eugene, went to the University of Oregon where uh Nike has a lot of history and um then moved here to San Francisco 2010. So it's been a little while.
0: Yeah, the Nike book is my only reference point, but as far as I can tell after reading it, Oregonians take a lot of pride in being from Oregon.
1: Yeah, yeah. There's there's this weird thing also about Oregonians in that they're for some reason using an umbrella is lame. And so I used to I lived in, in Eugene most of my life and then moved to Portland. And I would walk to work about a half a mile. And in Oregon, it rains a lot. And I would walk with an umbrella because I didn't want to get wet. And I'd show up at the office and some of my my teammates, coworkers, they'd be like, why are you using an umbrella? And everyone else, they they, they take a lot of pride in in just not using an umbrella, but having just raincoats and walking in the rain and getting their feet soaking wet. Mm. And I just don't get it. Uh, you know. So. <laughs> Born and raised in Oregon, I just don't get that at all. Yeah, I don't get it either. <laughs>
0: I, I wasn't raised in Oregon, but I think if I was, I'd be I'd be on your side about that.
1: Yeah, yeah. I don't like squishy squishy feet, uh, you know, all day. Yeah,
0: man. Wet socks are the worst. Yeah. So we've talked a little bit about starting a community. Do you want to dive into the specifics behind how you actually got Product Hunt off the ground? Because I know a lot of people listening are trying to start communities. And I think it makes sense to want to run a community as a business because... It's just fun. You get to run a business where you spend most of your time talking to people about the thing that you like the most in the world. But it's tricky to get off the ground. How did you get the first people in the door for Product Hunt? How did you keep them there and grow the community from that point?
1: In some ways, Product Hunt in the community started before Product Hunt in the sense that in 2012, 2013, I was actually writing quite a bit. And the irony is that I hated writing in high school. And I think it's because my teachers made me write about books and other stupid things I didn't care about. But then I got into a habit and started really enjoying blogging about technology and products. And I would often write about new products, like at the time, Tinder, when it was early in Snapchat. I would try to use writing as a vehicle to learn and to understand, like, why why does Snapchat, for example, at the time, open up to the camera immediately? Or why does it have this particular design element? And did a lot of reading. and And so over time, I... I was able to to build a tiny audience, not very many people, but like a small enough audience of people who were excited about technology, who were following me, and I had an email email list and a few other like little projects I was working on, and so that all kind of allowed me to then have an audience of people who were excited about technology to then build something for ultimately. And and I to clarify, I wasn't writing necessarily to with the the idea of okay, I'm going to start Product in two years and or I'm even going to start a company in two years, and it's going to be for tech people. But it just sort of organically happened. So then fast forward to the early days, you know, Product Hunt started off initially as an email list. And it was just an idea. I loved products. I I used to browse the App Store, AngelList, and other places just to find them. And me and my friends were also sharing these products oftentimes. And so I thought, okay, well. There's a bunch of, you know, social networks like Twitter and Facebook to find these things. They're online publications like TechCrunch, but really what I want is a list, just a simple list of cool stuff every day. And I want also a place to talk about these things. And so email was the easiest sort of MVP. I'm also not an engineer like yourself and, and others that start companies. I'm my background's in in uh you know business, marketing, product management is is more my professional career. And so I had to get creative. And so email was sort of the the simplest way to get started. So launched the email and going back to what I said before, I had a small enough audience of people who were following me so they, they would subscribe and quickly got a couple hundred subscribers. And so that helped a ton in just getting things started and almost in some ways it was also just validating. It was encouraging because people were actually reading this email. If I try to reflect back and if there were only a dozen people on this email list for the first few weeks, I don't know if I would have had the motivation or maybe I would have you know, maybe lost the, the interest thinking that no one else wanted this thing. So having the first few hundred people subscribing and then also emailing me and saying how much they enjoyed this email list every day was really inspirational to to keep going. And, um, you know, when I think back on, on Product Hunt and in some aspects like indie hackers too, like that, those feedback loops when you're in the early days of some validation or camaraderie or whatnot, it can be super helpful.
0: Oh, Yeah. The early days of Indie Hackers, I had my weekly newsletter. And so I would add new interviews to the website. And then I would send out on Thursday sort of an update of everything that I changed on the website and improved in addition to the new interviews. And it was like, I think if you have a normal job, you know, you have a boss, you have somebody checking in on you who can congratulate you if you do a good job or who will, you know, you feel some sort of external pressure to actually do things. I think having that email list for me created the feedback loop that you're mentioning where it was super encouraging to hear people. You know who actually enjoyed what I was doing and would respond to the emails. And I felt, even before getting the responses, just during the week that I needed to work harder and that I was motivated to get things done because I wanted to be able to send out a good email every week.
1: Yeah, and when you're doing that too, you're kind of putting yourself out there too. And, and people have an expectation. It's like, All right, Thursday I'm going to get the email from Cortland. And so it, it kind of keeps yourself honest, I imagine.
0: Yeah, exactly. And I think what's what's cool about how you got your start where Product Hunt was entirely an email list, is one of the things that you mentioned yourself, that you're not an engineer, and so you had to get creative. I think an engineer might have probably bitten off a lot more than that for the most basic version of Product Hunt, and then maybe built something that was overly complex, that wouldn't have had the sort of staying power that an email list could have, even with only a dozen subscribers. And I think the another cool thing about it is that an email list as a community doesn't necessarily need a lot of interaction. In fact, people don't have to interact with each other at all for that to be a useful bedrock of a community. You just send out the email, yeah. and as long as it's it's worth reading, then it works. And I think you know it's very difficult to get a community off the ground if you have an empty forum or an empty chat room and only a few people in there, and no one ever talks. But with email, it's no one really had to talk.
1: Yeah, it, it that's actually really really uh, astute point. It's it's kind of a good way of bootstrapping a community in the beginning because you don't want that that ghost town effect especially if you're you're building something that has a lot of, that's that's en- entirely reliant on UGC or user interactions if we started product hunt maybe without kind of a base of you know a few thousand email subscribers it would have been harder for us to get enough curation and posts and comments to make it feel lively and there's like a tipping point in communities where you have enough people where you can I don't know if you remember the moment when you you could not post something yourself and the community would still be vibrant. Oh yeah, because <laughs> otherwise, in the beginning, you're like, okay, let me let me post this. Let me go ask this person to post. Let me activate this person here. Uh, it takes a lot of like manual efforts to get started.
0: Yeah, you're just trying to roll this ball down the hill and get the momentum going. And it's it's it was a long slot for me with the anti hackers community. It was months of me posting and asking people to post. Who was working with you in the beginning days of product time? Was this just you by yourself sending these emails?
1: Yeah, so it, initially it was, it was just me and I was using a, a product actually called LinkyDink, which is uh, no longer around anymore, but it's kind of a cool cool project out of um, a small studio that was in, in, the United, um, in England. And that system basically allowed me to, from the very beginning, create an email that was collaborative. And so it wasn't actually me curating the email entirely. It was actually me whitelisting, I think it was maybe 10, 15 people, who had access to share these products. And then everyone that subscribed got access to the list that was sent every day. And so that piece was already automated. And then when we got to the point where I realized, okay, well, people seem to be liking this. People are subscribing. Obviously, email is great, but you can't interact. You can't really do much. There's not much social. Well, there's really no social engagement. That was when I I decided, okay, well, let's turn this into a site, a place where you can interact, comment, Upvote and actually I modeled it a lot after like Hacker News and Reddit. And mm-hmm. going back to what I said before, we didn't want to reinvent like the wheel. You know, Indie Hackers 2 has like an upvote mechanism and comments, and it's very familiar. And that's not a bad thing. I think a, a lot of people maybe try to get too cute or <laughs> unique in some of the their product design decisions. And so, you know, at the time I was like, all right, email's great, but we need a site. And not being an engineer, I, I had a couple different paths. One, I was going to to learn like React or uh, Ruby or whatever and just try and teach myself some basics so I can get something off the ground. That was one option. The other was was using like telescope, which I don't I don't know the current status of telescope, but it's an open source platform to create something kind of like an email combination of like a hacker news type type site or an email list. That was another option. And I ended up emailing a buddy of mine, Nathan Bashaw, about this and just got his feedback and and his response was Oh I love the email like you know I'm I have some time over Thanksgiving I'll be at my parents place you want to work on it together and Nathan's a super talented like very well-rounded individual super product-minded designer and engineer and so in the beginning it was him and me kind of working on this as a side project for a while
0: At what point did you decide that this was going to be more than a side project that it would be an actual startup
1: Yeah it was it was maybe within the first 5 months roughly 4 or 5 months and it was a combination of we launched launched the email, got some traction, then launched the site, continued to work on it, continued to grow the platform. Ended up paying uh, a guy named Ricardo in Italy, a developer part time. Um, I didn't have much much money, and Italy is just a lot cheaper. And so Ricardo was was uh, available, and, and through a friend of mine, and an awesome guy actually, like very um, very humble guy so he was working on the side to make sure the site was like up and running cuz Nathan was working full time too and we started building more things and over time as it just started growing more and more i just realized one i could see where this could go i could see this becoming much bigger than this tiny little email list that i started in the beginning and two i love working on this and i could see myself doing this uh, for a decade as i mentioned earlier is like kind of a i think it's a good question to ask yourself before you before you raise money, especially, because you can't really give money back. <laughs> and so then there was a point where Product Hunt started to become more well-known and, and growing. And it was actually some folks at YC, YC, the, the current batch actually at Y Combinator, they were actually using it a lot. And it was becoming fairly well-known within that community. And it was Nicholas, the CEO of Algolia, he actually DM'd me on Twitter. And he's like, hey, Ryan, have you thought about joining Y Combinator for Product Hunt? You know, it wasn't even incorporated. We didn't raise money. I wasn't really sure if I wanted to, to turn it into a company and, and, you know, take that commitment yet. But I started, one, exploring the option and met with Gary Tan and Alexis and Kevin Hale and Kat and met all four of them, actually, just to get feedback on Product Hunt and better understand what Y Combinator would be for us. Then, long story short, ended up applying and then, then getting in and raising around around that time as well.
0: I think in total... You ended up raising about $7.5 million from investors in the course of running Product Hunt. But let's pretend for a second that all of those investors turned you down. You never got into YC. You never got any subsequent money. What do you think your game plan would have been for growing and sustaining Product Hunt?
1: Yeah, so there, there's an alternate... Someone should write an alternate startup tech like diary or fan fiction or something, <laughs> but alternative scenarios of what would happen if X or, or Y didn't happen. And I thought a lot about this. In fact, one of the, the realization was, well, one thing I'll say is that funding is, oftentimes it's a mechanism to hire people and to build things. And so the goal wasn't to raise money, the goal was to build a team. And raising money was a way to do that. However, it was actually another scenario that I was thinking, and I, I didn't actually pursue this, and I'm curious what would happen uh, in an alternate reality if, if I pursued this direction, but it was actually to to open source it there was a thought that what if Product was actually built directly by the community and everyone could contribute and it was built that way. And I found that really compelling because one, we are a community of people and technology. So it's a natural fit, like where our, our audience and our target demographic is the same people that would be excited to participate and build on it. But I didn't pursue that direction. And the large reason for that was I hadn't seen it done really elsewhere. It's, it's, pretty infrequent that you see a very successful company that's entirely open source and distributed be successful and and furthermore how do you manage consistency with design and and implementation and all of these other things that are really difficult to manage that said i find that that direction of company building is really fascinating and not to go down a rabbit hole but you know the world of of blockchain and crypto and the future of of work and remote working i think I think we'll see more platforms emerge that support that type of way of building companies and products.
0: It's interesting you mentioned that you know one of the things that turned you off to that approach was the fact that you hadn't really seen it done successfully before. And I think this is kind of a recurring theme too because uh, we've also talked, you mentioned a couple times earlier, about how some of the early product hunt design, Andy Hackers' design as well, sort of cribbed these, these features and these details that we've seen working on other sites. We've seen Upvotes work on Hacker News and Reddit. We've seen commenting lead to interesting discussions. And so we didn't really try as hard as we could to innovate in those areas when we could just do what other sites did that was working and then we could focus our efforts on other areas. Where do you draw the line here? How do you know when you should innovate as the founder of a business and when it's okay to just sort of go with the status quo?
1: I don't know if there's a, there's no math equation. I think you can put that, that question through, but one thing that I would evaluate or consider is try to reduce variables, try to reduce risk and starting a company and going more traditional route and whether that's VC or bootstrapping, whatever it may be, that's already really hard. Like it's probably not going to work anyway. So if you try to do that and then you add in this giant X factor of, okay, now you're going to be one of the few to, to like very, very few companies to be built distributedly and open source. Like it's another huge <laughs> X factor. And, and so I think that same logic and same thinking can be applied to a lot of different things. And if you're building, let's say, from a product design perspective, maybe you have a really creative idea and innovation around some user behavior or design pattern or whatnot. Maybe it's wiser to innovate in one area, but keep other things more consistent and familiar. And maybe maybe Snapchat might be a decent example of that. Snapchat was quite innovative in the fact that it deleted your pictures and it opened up to the camera immediately. Those were core like fundamental principles that made Snapchat unique and different and useful for people. But it also had similar things like friends and friend mechanics and, and a lot of other aspects that are exhibited in other social products. So I think sometimes it's like this balance of innovating in some areas, but not being too cute or too creative because that can only, that can sometimes introduce additional risk and, And potential failure
0: and you only have so many hours in the day as a founder you can't really afford to give your full attention to 10 different innovations and if you do they're just all going to be crappy anyway from a practical standpoint it's just not feasible to really spread yourself that thin
1: yeah i'm curious actually uh, there must be some crazy ideas that you've had at indie hackers that maybe you have tried or maybe you decided not to whether it's marketing or product features or things like that do you can you share any of those
0: Oh yeah. Uh, I mean, I have one that I'm working on right now, which is, should indie hackers be less of a forum and more like Twitter? And that's a question that's been going through my mind for a very long time, because when I think about what are the best communities of entrepreneurs online, there's a few forums that I can name, but none of them are really standout products. And if I think, where do I see people sharing sort of the best and most interesting updates that are transparent about what they're working on, it's Twitter. And so I spent a lot of time in recent weeks thinking about exactly why that is. So I've been analyzing the differences between the mechanics of a traditional online forum and a social feed like you might find on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. And it turns out that the latter, a social feed, is actually very promising for running an online community centered around discussing being an entrepreneur. So this is one of the more risky and I think experimental changes that I'm actually planning on implementing. Meetups are another thing that we were doing that I... Don't think was really on my radar to begin with, but um, Patrick at Stripe has been really big on Indie Hackers Meetups. And so we kind of just put the word out a couple of weeks ago hey, would you like to be an Indie Hackers Community Ambassador and host one meetup a week in your, uh, per month in your city? And now we've got like 120 people in 90 cities across the world who are hosting meetups every month, which is super cool. And nice. it's, not, it's not something that like directly impacts the traffic to the website but it's really cool because it's an avenue for people who live in cities where they might not have ever met anybody who wants to start an online business and now they can go get coffee with the person down the street who they never knew existed.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, we, we've we had meetups uh, early on and and they're, they're too, like to your point about measuring the impact, it's really hard. It's impossible actually <laughs> to truly measure the impact and, uh, you know, if we'd never had a single meetup, I don't know how that would have affected like where we're at today with Product Hunt, but there's a lot of value that comes from having a community meet in person and bond around a similar passion. And I think it was last year we had 150 product Hunt meetups across the world. And, uh, and we're actually, maybe by the time this podcast is out, we're, we're introducing more of a, like a tech events, uh, board to not only house product meetups, but also other interesting tech events across the world. And, uh, as much as I, I personally avoid meetups and events because <laughs> I'm, an introvert and ten, tend to avoid those things. Um, they do create a lot of value, I think, for the community and, and generally the ecosystem at large.
0: It's funny that we're both introverts who don't really like going to events, and yet we are working on online communities and running meetups <laughs> and running podcasts.
1: I know. Irony, right? It's, uh, I don't know how
0: we got ourselves into the situation, Ryan. I know.
1: Yeah. <laughs> we created our own prison. We
0: really can't, did. Can't leave now. <laughs> it's too late. So Product Hunt, since those early days of just being an email list, you guys have launched what seemed like dozens of products. You've got the basics, you've got your email list, you've got job board, you've got your podcast, your blog, you've got mobile apps and desktop apps and Chrome extensions. Mm -hmm. Uh, You've got the core functionality of Product Hunt, which is where people submit and vote on each other's products. But then you've got all sorts of other cool features that you built on top of that. You've got Product Hunt Collections, Product Hunt Sip News, Product Hunt Ship, Product Hunt Chat, Product Hunt Makers, and the list goes on. Yeah what's the strategy here why I release so many new things and what are some of the lessons that you've learned by doing so
1: yeah so the the theme this year the past six months uh, more specifically has been around two I would categorize it in two different areas one is uh, getting to profitability so we we historically have not focused on revenue until towards the end of last year and by based on our current projections things are going well we'll be profitable this year so I'm really happy about that it'll be a great sort of milestone to, to Check off our, our our list, and then the other focus has been actually around a lot of experimentation. So it's intentional that we're launching a lot of things, and I'm I guess I'm fortunate to say that we have uh, such a strong engineering team and in team in general, but particularly in engineering where we have oftentimes each individual product is led by one person, and so we're able to parallelize a lot of things. Versus at previous companies I've been at, it required three or four engineers to do anything. <laughs> And I think that's just, uh, yeah, that's a whole other story. But a lot of what we're doing is experimenting with different ways based on different ways for us to create value for our community and for the tech ecosystem. And so a lot of these things are based on observations of the behavior in product hunt. So one example is, uh, one simple example is chat. So we launched chat where you can chat one-on-one with people, or you can even create a group chat, but most people use it to communicate privately with one another. That was a very obvious feature. And, and granted, it's not necessarily going to grow our community. Chat is not something that people come to Product Hunt for. <laughs> but it's a feature and a, a way for people to build connections with one another. And we, we noticed that a lot of people within the comments were giving their Twitter username and saying, hey, DM me on Twitter, or sharing their email and saying, hey, let's take this offline. And that behavior was very clear that people were trying to communicate individually, privately with one another. And so it's things like that that we're expanding on to in concert with things like makers to build Product and into a place where people can truly connect with one another and create more social interaction. So products and, and discovering products and geeking out about products is will always be a big part of product Hunt, But we want to use that also almost as like social lubrication or a way to bring people together to then connect in other ways. And, you know, fast forward, uh, you know, some examples of that are people helping each other. some are people connecting and co-founding companies together or starting side projects together. We want to create more opportunities for people to to kind of experience those those serendipitous connections on the network.
0: There's so much there that I want to talk about. How do you decide what to build uh, the difference between being a company that's not focused on generating revenue and being a company that you know suddenly decides that you need to turn on that revenue faucet. but first, I want to go back to some of the early decisions you made, especially the transition from being an email list to becoming a website? Because I'm sure you had a lot of options and that must have been nerve-wracking to make that decision. What went into that decision and how did you uh, sort of envision the future of Product Hunt back when you were just an email list?
1: Yeah, so the the, the direction, the vision has always been the same, but the direction has changed slightly. And I'll, I'll try to describe what I mean. Product Hunt in the beginning was very organic in that it it was a combination of a lot of apps and tech products and and still today that's what you find on Product Hunt. And over time as the community grew more and more, started to evolve into not just a place where people shared products they loved and and found, but it became very much a a place where makers and and people come to launch their products. And that actually was that wasn't something I foresaw maybe I should have (laughs) in the beginning but it wasn't a dynamic that I expected to happen in the beginning until it just organically started to to occur and that's when we introduced things like uh, maker badges and being able to highlight the maker of this product in the conversation so people knew who they were talking to and we also instrumented and, and productized a lot of ways for us to notify the makers when their products are on product hunt to ensure that they one were aware it was on there and two could jump in the conversation and so in many ways, Product Hunt became not just a place to to share cool stuff you found, but a launch pad for, for this community of technologists. And then there's a lot of aspects of, of Product Hunt that changed, a lot of areas that we made mistakes in and in terms of redesigning the homepage and, and the feed and spending too much time and trying to make the, the feed more compelling when actually people liked how it was. <laughs> it's also like a, an interesting challenge I think a lot of communities fall into is you have ideas of what you want to build and yet your community has expectations and like familiarity that sometimes they're um, averse to. There a lot of times communities don't like change. And so there's certainly a lot of like mistakes in the product design side of things that, that we made uh, as it evolved, trying to, to make it more visual, for example, with like inline videos and images and whatnot. Right. And so there's a lot of like mistakes and learnings kind of along the way over the past almost five years.
0: I was talking to John O'Nolan the other day, the creator of the Ghost blogging system, Mm, and he gave me some interesting advice. He said, as a founder, you should listen to some people, or you should listen to no people, but you should never try to listen to all of the people. Yeah. Who do you listen to the most, and who do you ignore when you're trying to figure out the right decisions to make for running product time? Because I know you have several different segments of people who actually use the site for very different reasons.
1: Yeah. It's hard. I wouldn't necessarily classify an entire group of people that I ignore necessarily, but I will I will call out investors a little bit in that investors use, some use Product Hunt as a combination of just like a, a place to stay up to date and what's new and cool and interesting. And then some also use it to find early stage promising companies or, or maybe just find the people that are building really cool stuff. And of course, I've gotten a lot of advice from investors, especially our own investors have their own ideas. And some of them have they're thinking about product hunt from their lens, and so they'll ask for things like, "Hey, I would love, um, I would love to know who's raising money, and I would love to, ha- like, why don't you build a fund on top of product hunt and fund the most upvoted products?" Or, like, they have a lot of different needs, and also the investor base is like, I don't know what percentage it is point zero one percent of our audience. <laughs> so the reality is we we don't want to listen too much to investors needs and build for them because that's a entirely different product if we're building if we're building a curated platform for investments like that i mean that's what Angelist is to some extent you know it's a very different type of company and product
0: let's talk about some of the things some of these lessons that you've learned and listening to some of your users trying things out failing iterating etc what are some of the things that have worked the best for growing the product on community
1: yeah let's see um a lot of it, a lot of what we tried to do is observe, like there's a combination of listening to your community and what they, what their ideas are and hearing them out. And then there's a combination of observing their behavior. And so one example that I like to illustrate this is collections is actually just an observation of, of how people were using Product Hunt. So collections, for those that don't know, it's, it's a way to essentially bookmark or create lists of products that, that you want to save or share. And so it could be, is, is something as simple as cool apps that I love, or it could be um, free startup tools. Heat and Shaw actually has a, a collection he's been managing for I think two or three years of free startup tools, and he just adds ones that he likes to this list every single like, week or so. And so we observed that people were actually saving products to Trello or saving them to Wonderlist or other third-party tools. And obviously, to do that, you need to copy and paste the URL and then put it in your own software and. Like go through a number of hoops to like save this thing. And so we saw this happening repeatedly and we we realized, well, why don't we make it really easy for people to bookmark these things? And why don't we allow them to add things to a collection collection that's ultimately shareable that we can then use for further curation and also to allow people to like explore products in a different way. So it's not just about, here are the newest products today, but here's a bunch of really cool free startup tools. Or uh, I have a collection of, Apps that I continue to add called nostalgic apps, which are, are products or apps that are just like kind of weird and bringing back nostalgic feelings. So there's, there's one that, that, uh, it's like a, um, a radio time machine. So it plays like music that was popular on the billboard top 100 exactly one year ago, for example. So there's just a lot of things like that, that observation of behavior was helpful in determining. Okay. Well, let's build for that behavior and make it easier for them to do. And. By doing so, then you think from a strategic perspective, we have more data about these people, more data about these products, and more ways to help people discover other products as well.
0: What were some things you did to start getting more users in the door as opposed to um, sort of delighting the people who were already Product Hunt users? I mean, I know you were doing a lot of manual effort stuff up front, responding to people on Twitter, responding to people over email when you had your email list. Did you keep doing this manual stuff, or did you ever hit on any? More scalable ways to get people to know about product time
1: yeah there there's two ways that we grew in the beginning uh that were very effective and now less effective because I guess user growth and growth in general it's there's like these things that you do that get you to a next the next milestone, but then oftentimes it's it's kind of like a a well you you sort of tap out you can't necessarily continue to grow exponentially using that same channel or that same technique
0: you've got to find something new
1: yeah yeah which is the hard part about startups is you always have to figure out something new so there were two things in the beginning that were incredibly beneficial one one was actually tech press and this is a trap for a lot of companies a lot of people chase tech press because they want to show off how cool they are uh, and it's oftentimes a vanity metric but for us Tech press was helpful because the people that were reading TechCrunch are exactly the type of people who would want to use Product Hunt, and so when we had some early tech press, whether it was launch announcements we had, or oftentimes we get and, and still get mentioned uh, in these these publications or these articles saying, "Hey, here's this new product that launched." Here's a, a link to the Product Hunt conversation where we found it or where the, the maker is is answering questions. A lot of that was really helpful. And again, it's, it's not helpful for a lot of companies, but actually most companies. Um, it's a terrible growth strategy <laughs> to rely on press, but for the first, let's say six to nine months, it was incredibly helpful. And then the second lever for us was, was going back to what I said about makers joining. So what we realized is there was this nice flywheel that, that happened and still happens today in that when we have a person who's launching a product, they, they end up bringing their own audience to some extent. They launch a product and they share it on Twitter or Facebook, LinkedIn, sometimes with their own email list. They then bring n number of users and those users contribute in upvotes and comments and, and other things like that. And some of those users are, are also makers. They're also people who are building products. And so there's this nice flywheel effect in that every time there's a product that launches, they bring in new people and then some of those people stick around and the community continues to grow that way. And... That's still an important part of product time, but it's it's not something that necessarily is, that alone is exponentially going to grow us to another like 10 million people per month, for example.
0: Yeah, I think what's interesting about growing your startup and hitting these plateaus, where you what you were doing earlier no longer works, you, know, you have to figure something else out that's new, is that it gets harder over time. Because by the time you've grown, you're now even bigger, which means that a lot of the older, a lot of the growth tactics that you look at are just not right for the scale that you're at. So for example, if you're trying to grow your company by, I don't know, answering questions on Quora, that might be good for getting a few hundred or maybe even a few thousand people in the door. But if you've got 200,000 people coming to your website and getting a few hundred people in the door, it doesn't really move the needle. What moves the needle at Product Hunt today? What are the newer growth channels you're looking at and how do you get Product Hunt to uh, the next level in terms of size and impact?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So there's there's certainly those things that are helpful in the beginning and then, at some scale, they, they're a waste of your time. Like for me to, to go on Corda to to write thought influencer pieces and, and try to track traffic to product is not a good use of my time or anyone's time. But then there are also some things that you can now do when you get to a certain scale that weren't possible before. And one thing that's been very effective in the past year, roughly, is SEO. And so the combination of things have happened. One, we've had this this website up for almost five years now, and we've created some domain authority on the internet. We also have a lot of data and a lot of products, over 100,000 products posted, and comments and original content around this this information. And we also have a lot of things that people may not realize, some of it behind the scenes. like We have things that are uh, relations to products, for example, alternatives to products, where we're actually tagging and creating uh, a network of sort of this this product network where we know which products are related to each other. And we use that to then generate effective landing pages like alternatives to Slack or alternatives to Intercom, for example, which are things that people are searching for. And so these are things that a lot of the core product tenant community don't even see. And it's intentional. It's not that we're trying to surface a lot of this content, but we're able to use all the content and data that we have to create these pages that then attract search uh, traffic as well. And that's something that we wouldn't have been able to do in the first year, maybe two years effectively.
0: And what happens when somebody goes to one of these alternative two pages? How do you think about capitalizing on that traffic that you're getting from searches and optimization and sort of leveraging it to accomplish your vision at product time?
1: Yeah, you know, right now we're we're sort of at the phase where we're we're continuing to learn what pages and what types of of keywords are working. And we're we're not doing anything aggressive in terms of trying to get those people on a retention channel, you'll see, uh, I don't know the current state of of core and Pinterest, but back in the day, they would be very, very aggressive with any kind of uh, traffic, especially from search, and force you to log in after you saw maybe one article or after you scrolled down the page. And so those are some things that we want to since we're, we want to avoid being overly aggressive like that. But we do want to Sort of, as the next phase, after we we continue to grow the actual traffic size, we want to think through how do we identify the types of people and then which channels people are landing on that are driving return visitors or driving email subscribers or some sort of metric that gets people right. on a retention uh, hook? because the other reality is a lot of these search traffic users are not coming back. they they see they they search for alternative to intercom and they see some other product they click away and they're done. So that that's, that's something we have yet to figure out right now.
0: Well, you're several steps ahead of me. ND Hackers is primarily a content-based site, and yet my search engine optimization is still pretty abysmal.
1: Yeah, you know, I'll, it's not. It's not something I knew really anything about, and still don't know a lot about. Like, I'm not. I'm not the one. I'm not the expert on this this field at all. And it's also not something I, I gave enough respect because SEO isn't a sexy thing, really, <laughs> for most people. It's not a cool thing. It's also not necessarily fun for a lot of people. And I think this is kind of a theme too with entrepreneurship is oftentimes you need to be open-minded and be willing to do the things you don't like to do because actually maybe SEO is the biggest growth lever that you have and it's something that you should prioritize even though it's not the most fun thing to do.
0: Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned this because I think a lot of people's companies don't do as well as they could because people aren't as open-minded to exploring and learning about the different channels that they could use to get the word out about what they're doing. Mm -hmm. And It's funny to be talking to you about this because on hackers, probably the most common channel that people use to get the word out about what they're doing is Product Hunt. So the sort of stereotypical thing is I've built my business, I have a website up, nobody knows about it, so I'm going to put it on the front page of Product Hunt, which is great because a lot of people who are looking for new products will find it if it does well. But it's also sad to see people stop there and not consider things Mm -hmm. like, submitting to other communities, are trying to get to the top of Google, are pitching press, or any of the dozens of other channels that might work for their business.
1: Yeah, yeah, there's there's infinite number of ideas and channels, and, and also these these channels change too. So if you look at, there was a time, uh, maybe 2014 and 15 might have been the peak, where a lot of these social mobile apps were leveraging uh, your phone contact address book to grow uh, tremendously quick. and you know some of that's a little bit shady some of it was a lot of dark patterns to get you to invite your friends but that that was very effective in growing for a lot of different companies and now today it's a lot more difficult one i think it's because a lot of consumers are a lot more hesitant to give access to those things mm-hmm. and they're also i think more sophisticated to to not invite you know their their grandma <laughs> to the some social app via text messaging and so it's it's one of those things that there's certain things that will always, well, for the foreseeable future, be a growth channel like SEO to some extent, search traffic. But then there are also these new channels that emerge and and sometimes die out over a year or two.
0: Yeah, I remember talking to uh, David Hauser, the CEO of a company called Grasshopper, and they were big back in the early 2000s. And one of the channels that they used back then that still exists but it's completely different is Google AdWords, like the advertising on Google search results. But back then, it was like, i don't know like half a cent to get several clicks or something to your website and so it was just a massive growth channel for them and nowadays it's much more expensive much more competitive so i would encourage anyone listening who's trying to figure out how to grow their grow their business and get their first customers in the door to be creative and look for things that are maybe newer that aren't as overutilized as mm-hmm. some of the more popular channels
1: yeah yeah it's it's part of people that that love uh it's a, it's a fun profession um growth and and um, it's not something I've formally ever been in, but uh, there's so many, so many different. It's like a combination of of, of science and um, and psychology. Oftentimes, when you think about exploiting or or leveraging, might be a better word. <laughs> different growth <laughs> channels.
0: Yeah. So I want to talk a little bit about revenue growth since you are on the Indie Hackers podcast, after all. But I think to really understand how you're thinking about revenue at Product Hunt, why you're charging for products nowadays, and you didn't used to. We should mention the fact that Product Hunt was acquired by AngelList at some point mm-hmm. in your journey. Why, why sell Product Hunt? Why not keep going on your own? And how has life changed since joining AngelList?
1: Yeah. So let's see. It's been about a year and a half since the acquisition. And and so uh, kind of going back to, to what I was saying before, we went through Y Combinator. We raised uh, two rounds. One was seed round and another one was led by Andreessen Horowitz. And, uh, one of those investors in, in our seed round was actually Naval and I had, you know, been following Naval, uh, following Angelus for a long time. And, and it was kind of at that moment where we connected and, and, um, you know, stayed in touch over, over the course of product Hunt. and then fast forward to 2016, uh, sounds like an eternity ago when I say 2016, but, uh, uh, we, we got to the point where we're evaluating like next steps. What do we want to do with product and where are we going to take this? And started then um, talking to Naval about what they're doing and the conversation started to to turn into how do we work together. And the beauty of this relationship, not to sound too cheesy, <laughs> is that we're we're very much building for the same audience and, and have very similar cultural values in that Angelus is building uh, their their goal and mission is to really help startups succeed. And they do that by helping them get capital so that they gain hire and whatnot, and also hire through talent platform. And those are two like fundamental, very important things is if you don't have a team and you don't have money, oftentimes you can't really do anything. And the thing that they were missing was how do they get users? How do you get get distribution? And also kind of an aspect of that that was missing within AngelList is kind of community and engagement and something that you come back to every single day. AngelList is is awesome, but it's not necessarily a place that you're... It's not designed to be a place that you come back to and hang out. Um, It's designed for very important high-value transactions. So when we got to talking and and hearing more about what they're doing in Angelus, it made sort of just like peanut butter and jelly (laughs) in that a lot of what they're aiming to do aligns with what we're doing, but we have very different types of directions and and almost complementary values or, or things that we're trying to achieve.
0: Has the acquisition affected how you look at generating revenue for Product Hunt? And as sort of a follow-up to that, how do you look at generating revenue for Product Hunt and what's your game plan there?
1: Yeah, so the, the first, I would say, year, uh, revenue was not, uh, first year after the acquisition, that is, revenue was not the priority. And uh, partly the the goal was actually to keep things relatively cohesive and not disrupt the community. Because the last thing we wanted to do was uh, like we made jokes about like rebranding it to angel hunt and <laughs> putting it under angel Angel Co. and like that wouldn't make any sense like why would we do that that would be um, a slap in the face to the community and the brand that we have built and so a lot of our focus in the beginning was let's keep things relatively consistent let's make sure that this transition is smooth because you never know how a community will react when there's an acquisition and the, the fortunate thing is a lot of people in product hunt actually admire angel list and a lot of them tweeted at me and said, "Hey, I love Product 10 and I love AngelList because I got my job. I like got hired to AngelList." So a lot of that was was sort of the first year, and then fast or, or going back to end of last year, the the shift then went to revenue and, and getting to a place where we can pay pay our own bills basically. And our strategy for that has been kind of twofold. It all fundamentally comes back to what I was saying before in terms of identifying a behavior or listening to users. Like every single revenue. Effort that we've done has been driven by some form of that, in, or in one way or another. And the the ways that we're monetizing today is is partly through advertising, and one of the biggest drivers of that is actually promoted products. And uh, the way we've approached that is, one, we could have approached it as anyone could pay to get the number one spot in Product Hunt and give us money, and that was that. would Be we might make more money, but we might also piss a lot of people off and turn Product Hunt into pay to play. Instead what we are doing now is we're actually allowing people who have been on product hunt before to get refeatured and that's the only people that can pay for a promoted spot on product hunt and by doing that we're able to surface things that people have already expressed interest in these are all products that have many many upvotes hundreds of upvotes in many cases and so it's not disruptive to the experience it's actually uh, in some cases additive because it's a cool product that was already like last week or last month on product hunt and we've gotten no complaints from that type of approach and we're able to monetize effectively. So that's, that's one of a few different kind of advertising based methods of revenue generation. And then the other is, is ship, which I can talk more about. Um, just a whole rabbit hole, but, uh, basically that subscription based SaaS, SaaS business, um, that we're building based on a lot of observations of how people are building products. And, and, uh, we have a thesis around how people can, can communicate better with their audience along the way.
0: Yeah, let's talk about Ship for a little bit. So, Ship is sort of your monthly recurring revenue subscription business that you guys have launched. How's that going? And what are some lessons that you've learned?
1: Yeah, so so I, I mentioned there's kind of two channels. We have advertising, which is pretty straightforward, pretty obvious, and then we have sort of subscription based revenue. And Ship is Ship is honestly, it's been a, an awesome learning opportunity for me because it's essentially a SaaS business. It's it's very Different than Product Hunt, but it leverages a lot of the same things and is built off of very much like all the observations that we've had over the, the past almost five years. And basically, the the idea is we noticed a lot of people are one building their own landing pages uh, for their products, two they're collecting emails and signing up for things like Mailchimp so that they can email those people, and three they're using things like Typeform to survey their users and get more information about them to help inform their their product design and, and what they're building. And so people have three to four different products that they're using for this. And as a result, what they're often having to do is export a CSV and import it into MailChimp and then take the results of Typeform and try to smash it together with your MailChimp results to be able to target certain people. For example, if you have a question that's like, are you an Android user or iPhone user? And you want to email all the iPhone users with a link to your test flight, how do you, you have to piece together three different tools to do that. It's a lot of work. And so the idea is, okay, we have people doing this, let's make it easier to do all these things and build it in one central platform so that you don't need to export CSVs anymore. (laughs) So the idea with SHIP is uh, to just help people build better products and spend more time building the product and less time building and piecing together all these tools to communicate with users.
0: Right, and I see a lot of indie hackers using SHIP for the reasons that you listed. I mean, it saves them from having to reinvent the wheel every time they want to launch a new product, gauge interest, put up a landing page, et cetera. I'm curious what lessons you've learned from launching Ship. If you could go back a year and talk to the Ryan of a year ago and and tell
1: him something about Ship, what would you say? That would be, I wish I could do that. That'd be amazing. I think part of the mistakes we've made with Ship have been, and I think this is pretty common, is we built a lot of features, and the reality is most people use one or two of the features, and they're happy with it. And a lot of the other things that we built aren't being used. And I think it's it's fairly common, especially with tools like this, where you're trying to build an all-in-one solution, it's really common to try to re, or rather build a lot of advanced features, like A-B testing and other things like that, that other tools have, without maybe fully realizing, like, will people really use this, or will enough people really use this to make it worth the time? And so... Certainly the mistake has been we build a lot of features, a lot of tooling, but a lot of it's not used and people are happy with just kind of the core basic product. <laughs> so that would be the thing I would tell myself is to to simplify and try not to, to go far, too far down the rabbit hole in, in rebuilding some of the more advanced feature set.
0: What do you think the future holds for generating revenue at product time?
1: So this this year will be profitable through the two different general channels that I, I mentioned and then at that point it's not necessarily a focus frankly of of then generating more and more money like of course we would like to but we're not trying to milk a cow until it's dead that's a really terrible terrible analogy <laughs> yeah, don't um, do that but we're not trying to make i yeah, know we're, we're not trying to make a ton of money after this like our, our goal actually is to get the profitability to cover our expenses and then we'll take some of that focus and shift it back towards building things for the community and user growth in general. So it's, it's very much um, kind of a two phases that we're looking at. And that, that sort of next phase will be probably at the end of this year, early next year.
0: Let's talk about your personal life for a little bit. How do you juggle you know, living a normal life and also being the founder of Product Hunt? How much time do you spend working? And how has your work-life balance changed since getting acquired by AngelList?
1: Yeah, it's, I fortunately, I like what I do. So work for me is, is oftentimes fun. In fact, it's my favorite thing to do is honestly get up early 530 and get to fills as fast as possible and start working. And there's something maybe it's not healthy. I don't know, but I just enjoy that. And even when we were, I was traveling recently and working remotely. First thing I would do in the morning in Paris, Berlin, in London is find a coffee shop and unfortunately no fills over there. But I found a coffee shop that had Wi-Fi and would camp out for two or three hours. And that was, I don't know, so, something about like therapeutic about it. And so fortunately, I like what I do. Uh, I feel that there are definitely waves of busyness. And I think most founders that I talk to have that feeling where some, some weeks are busier than others. And I certainly have those. But I also wouldn't mention and, and acknowledge the fact that I don't have as, there's a lot of stresses, but they're different stresses than when you're independent as a company. And when you have a company that ultimately when you're not making money and you're not profitable, you have you have a date where you're gonna die. And those are the most stressful moments is thinking about and worrying about growth or revenue or whatever it may be when you're independent that that now we don't have to worry about today. And Angelist, we we have a lot of ambitious goals and, and uh I have a lot of promises to keep and we're working just as hard, but I'm not worried that we're gonna to die tomorrow.
0: <laughs> when was the time
1: where you were worried that you were going to be dead tomorrow? you know it's we we went through two rounds of funding and so then they were very they're short back to back so it wasn't it was i think a four or five month difference between these two rounds and so we didn't go through where a lot of companies have multiple rounds over several years. It's a little bit different for us. a lot of it's you you end up seeing that there is this this point where you need to either raise a round um get acquired or or die, um, and then of course there's other options too, like scaling back and all of that. And there's certainly were moments with stress uh, where you're worrying like things don't always work, things don't always go to plan, things always take longer than expected. And so there's certainly some times, some months where there's stresses when you go to the board meeting and and you unfortunately have to deliver really not great news and the metrics don't look great. We've certainly gone through moments of that, and those are the most stressful stressful times to think of, of starting of, of building companies
0: how would you assess yourself as a founder and a CEO? What would you say are your strongest skills? And on the flip side, what do you need to work on the most?
1: I think from a from an individual contributor perspective, I, my, my skill sets lie in community building, marketing, and product management or, or product in general. And so that's, that's where I, I sort of hang my hat. I defer to other people way better than me on design and certainly on engineering. But from a some founder or leader perspective, I think, I think I'm, I don't know, I, maybe I should have my team <laughs> speak for me, but I think I'm good at managing and working with a lot of people across different functions and listening and being empathetic. I'm not so great at certainly not good at having hard conversations and keeping people accountable and setting deadlines and, and holding, uh, people up to the metrics that they, they 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 set in the beginning a lot of that is just not natural for me and it's something that i've recognized you know over the years and something i'm i'm trying to to improve but it's hard sometimes when you just want you want everyone to get along and you want to build awesome products sometimes you have to to be a little bit more strict and, and maybe institute an okr process and things like that to to help people do better at their own job
0: yeah it's so tough as a founder when you're just working to try to make your business succeed, and that's hard enough. But at the same time, you have to learn how to hire and manage and delegate effectively. And that's really challenging to do, especially if you don't have any management experience.
1: Yeah, and most most founders, uh, many of them have managed very small teams or no teams at all. And that was me, actually. I, I My background is in product management, and I didn't have any direct reports. Like I was one who would work across all functions of the group, but no one was reporting to me and I wasn't a manager. And so when Product Hunt started, it, now I became a manager and I had to learn kind of along the way and still still learning. And Indie Hackers is just you and, and your brother, is that right? Or do you have anyone else working with you?
0: Yeah, just the two of us, but we rely a lot on our community to get things done. And so mm-hmm. as I mentioned earlier, our community sort of moderates and polices itself. They create obviously all the content on the community forum. They run and host all the meetups that we have going on all over the world. Mm-hmm. They even contribute to a lot of our written content on the website. So most of the things we write, it's not blog posts written by me and my brother, but it's interviews that we're doing with other people, AMAs and roundtables. Otherwise, we just couldn't do very much by ourselves.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's impressive because it's really hard to it's really hard to build a company with just a few people, uh, especially when you have a living, breathing community that you can't just turn off. Yeah, exactly. It's <laughs> not so like you can... Like, you can't go to Burning Man, can you? I mean, how do you, how do you fully <laughs> disconnect? You really can't.
0: You know, I've been getting better at it recently, but it's, it's tough. I mean, you're right. I've never been to Burning Man.
1: Yeah, I went last year for the first time, and that was the I was offline for a little bit over a week, I think. And it was, it was really strange. It was the first time I didn't think about work at all, and that literally hasn't happened in my life once. Wow. <laughs> so it was a good disconnect.
0: Yeah, it sounds badly needed. Let me ask you where do you think the maker community is is going and where did it come from how have things changed in terms of the community behind product hunt from when you started it to where it is today
1: Yeah I mean for, part of the thesis in product hunt was an observation that one technology is technology is part of our culture and it's in many ways a uh, a way to express yourself the same way that music is a way to express yourself and we're seeing kids and people learning to code and learning design and learning all these things within the technology space with ambitions and aspirations to start a company or build something that people want. And that is something that I definitely foresee continuing and, and something that I certainly want to support because I think it's good to to support these people who are building things and using code and design and marketing or whatever their 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 passion is to express themselves. And that's why you see a lot of people who are um, maybe self-identified makers who are not building companies and have no intention of necessarily turning this thing into a company or a business but they're just building stuff because they want it to exist or they're building it for fun that's a trend that I think we'll we'll continue seeing and I I hope that the broader mainstream world understands that and acknowledges that it's okay to build a shitty product uh, and cuz like people are okay with people creating shitty music cuz it's it's a person who's learning. And I, I just see it far too often people who criticize others for building something that they don't think is of value or interesting or, or designed well. When we really should be celebrating and encouraging these people to try and, and explore the world of tech.
0: There's something about the internet in general where it's, it's kind of like cars where people get into a car and suddenly they lose all their humanity for everybody else who's in a car around them. And on the yeah. internet, it's, yeah. it's, it happens as well. Someone will put their product on Hacker News and, and then everyone just comes in with these heartless comments that are just needlessly critical without really realizing that somebody's a real person on the other end. So I totally agree with you. We should celebrate the fact that people are, are trying and that people are you know being creative and doing things that five, ten years ago they probably wouldn't have had the courage or the ability to do.
1: Yeah, certainly not the ability when, when, you know, a decade ago, you'd have to, to buy a server and like it would cost so much more, but it would also just take so much more time to build something and get something up, up and running. Now, you know, there's, there's lots of infrastructure in place to, to make it easier. And, uh, one, one community I'll shout out to is like glitch is one example is like a really cool, interesting take on, um, and community really of people building like web apps and silly fun stuff and, there's a lot of really cool kind of inspirational ideas on that platform.
0: Yeah, and when you, when you mentioned that it's easier to do this stuff nowadays because it's more affordable, I think about the same thing with indie hackers. There are a lot more people starting companies today because it's way cheaper to do it than it ever was in the past. And it's easier to learn. It's easier to learn how to code. It's easier to learn how to start a business because there's so many stories online where people have documented exactly what they did to get started. Mm-hmm. And I think you know, going into the future, we're going to see a lot more people doing this stuff because it's just easier and cheaper than it's ever been in the past.
1: Yeah. And I think there's also something really freeing about being an entrepreneur and building your own own thing on the internet, whether it's bootstrapped or, or VC backed, but I don't know, the internet's a pretty awesome place to to build and connect with people that have similar passions. And we're we're seeing I was just talking with some some people on on the team this over lunch around D and, and and the rise of um a lot of these, um, uh, direct to consumer brands mm-hmm. on the internet and, you know, it's, it's easier and easier now to build that with things like Shopify and, and some smart marketing on, on Instagram and Facebook. And there's a lot of infrastructure in place to give people an opportunity to create their own business and in some ways, uh, you know, uh, create their own lifestyle because if you can create your own business and you enjoy working on the internet, you can work anywhere.
0: Yeah. You can work from anywhere at any time on whatever project you want to it's. I think it's just too promising an opportunity for a lot of people to, to not at least give it a shot. Let me ask you, Ryan, to close out here, let's say somebody wants to start an online community. Is this something they should do? And if so, what are the steps they can take to try to do it?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think there'll always be an opportunity to create a community around something. I think my my advice or guidance would be pick a very specific community, an audience. And if Product for example, was product discovery platform for everything. If, if you went there and there was music and there was some sort of uh, Kickstarter campaign, an app, a uh, video game, uh, you know all these different things, it wouldn't be compelling, it wouldn't be cohesive. And the audience, no one would gravitate towards it because they wouldn't self-identify with it. Whereas today, product is about tech. And you do see a variety of things that are not necessarily tech products, but the majority is about tech. So I think it's so important to find a niche and a focus and ideally a hole in the, in the, in the world, like maybe there's one way to actually explore this is first look to yourself and be like, what, do, what am I passionate about? Cause at the end of the day, like, I'm not going to be the one that is, uh, going to build a, uh, an online community for lawyers. Cause I could care less about law, <laughs> but I am the one to build a community about tech and products. And so I think one piece of advice is to look at what are you passionate about? And then where, the, where do those people hang out today? And are, is there maybe an unserved need to 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 build a community around this particular interest or demographic or whatnot. And I don't know, I th- I find infinite number of opportunities to create to create communities. I think you could even look at look at subreddits and there may be opportunities to create uh basically your own brand and community around a popular subreddit as one area of inspiration.
0: Well said. Well thanks so much for coming on the show, Ryan. Can you tell listeners where they can go to learn more about what you're up to at product time.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I'm product slash RR Hoover. I'm also on Twitter RR Hoover. Um, where else am I? I'm on all the social networks uh, and yeah, we'll be launching a couple cool things over the next month or so. And yeah, thanks for having me. It's fun to be on. It's fun to be on a podcast that I listen to. So appreciate the invite. I appreciate you coming on Ryan. Thanks again. Take care.
0: If you enjoyed listening to this conversation and you want a really easy way to support the podcast, why don't you head over to iTunes and leave us a quick rating or even a review? If you're looking for an easy way to get there, just go to ndhackers.com slash review, and that should open up iTunes on your computer. I read pretty much all the reviews that you guys leave over there, and it really helps other people to discover the show, so your support is very much appreciated. In addition, if you are running your own internet business, or if that's something you hope to do someday, you should join me and a whole bunch of other founders on the ndhackers.com website. It's a great place to get feedback on pretty much any problem or question that you might have while running your business. If you listen to the show, you know that I am a huge proponent of getting help from other founders rather than trying to build your business all by yourself. So you'll see me on the forum for sure, as well as more than a handful of some of the guests that I've had on the podcast. If you're looking for inspiration, we've also got a huge directory full of hundreds of products built by other indie hackers, every one of which includes revenue numbers and some of the -the behind-the-scenes strategies for how they grew their products from nothing. As always, thanks so much for listening, and I'll see you next time.